It's all lies. Yeah, not Spike Milligan. No, I'm ring, ring, Ringo and the Beatles, mate. Eh? Well, where's the Beatles? In here, mate. <laughs> you don't believe me, do you, mate? No, I don't, mate. Right, don't, mate. All right, mate. I'll let you in on them, right? Right, mate. Ready? She loves me. special episode this week i am joined by stephen cockcroft co-presenter of the fabulous podcast nothing is real now stephen i know that he was quite keen on the goons otherwise why would he be on this guesting on this podcast (laughs) you know but i wasn't 100 sure he was that into the beatles um i soon found out he was okay and uh yeah we a conversation ensued in which the two of us talked about um, the, the goons and the Beatles and the, the many connections thereof, if that's the right way of putting it. So we had a, a, a lengthy conversation, an enjoyable conversation. Um, we enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Here it is. In my teens, I was a huge goons fan and I was the only person I knew uh, sort of among my peer group. I was the only person that listened to the goons. And I think I came to the goons because my mother had been a fan a huge, okay. huge fan back in the day. And um, it, it's, that's one of the things that she and my father do not have in common. My father loathed the goons, could, oh. not, could not abide the goons, this kind of surreal sense of humor. And I, I, I just remember, you know, Sellers and Milligan and Seacombe, they would appear on talk shows and Parkinson. And it, I think it was through that that my mother said, you know, they were doing the voices and they were talking about the goons. And then my mother would explain to me what the goons where or, or had been and uh I, I don't know what what year was the sort of the final or the last goon show of all 72 so i vaguely remember my mother i, I would have been maybe nine years old at that point i vaguely remember my mother passing comment on the fact that you know these these old men were getting back together um mm. to to do that and um the first goon show i actually heard all the way the way through was um napoleon's piano Oh, yes. Um, mm. From a, a library, you know, a, a vinyl LP mm. um, that, that, that uh, I borrowed from the library. And I was so taken with Napoleon's piano that I couldn't even tell you what was on the other side of that record. The what episode was on the other. But I, I just, that's, whatever it was, it was not as good as Napoleon's piano. Oh, no, it, it was the flea. The flea. Uh, the flea, which I think is slightly better. But, uh, you know. uh, uh, well, and I just, <laughs> I, I suppose I was maybe... 12 or 13 and uh the idea that someone would be saying you know uh you know would you like it would you like a gorilla to which the response is no i no thank you i've just put one out Mm. and and that was that became a kind of sort of thing that that you know and i would do the catchphrases and uh you you know i'm not going to do the voices i know there's a strict prohibition on 
uh, people doing the voices. But um, And I think it was just from there. And then I discovered the B- we had a great BBC shop in Belfast. Yeah, because uh, um, I, li- I lived in Belfast in the that, 90s. That, uh, yes, because I, I saw you on Twitter where you were saying, I think it was in Belfast. And I said, yeah, and so I was, yes, it was. And I bought I bought those double cassette episodes mm. of the... Uh, uh, so I just, I just, I still have a collection of those, nothing to play them on, but um, I, I can't bring myself to throw them out. You know? mm, mm-hmm. And it was, it was through me listening to Nothing Is Real, and, I, and particularly the, the episode you did on, you know, the name, look up the number, look up the number. I, um, uh, yes, I mean, I always sort of thought that was slightly goonish, but mm. it was only when I we sort of placed it in the context of what was happening around them and i uh, you know paul made some comment in in the late 80s that that was his favorite session mm. and i thought that was just him being you know contrary where everyone would say oh lady madonna or hey jude or something but i can see that in the midst of all of those business wrangles where they had literally almost come to blows he and john mm. they're standing around a microphone basically doing you know the, the crunts basically doing goon voices to each other, trying to kind of recapture or connect in some way when they were the Nurk twins, when they were listening to the goons and that, that sort of teenage friendship. And it's just out of reach, but that's where they went when they felt they needed to, to connect. And that, that session comes completely out of the blue. It wasn't being done for any purpose. It was an old tape. The backing tape that had been sitting on a shelf for four, three years. And yet that's, and I just think there is some, the more that I thought about it, the more, as we were doing that episode, I just thought that is such a poignant image. These two guys that just have drifted apart, their their, their friendship is, deter- the personal relationship is deteriorating. And this is where they go to try and reconnect. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it just, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. But the goons are that sort of shared communal emotional connection for the two of them. Wasn't, um, am I right in saying from memory that it was the B-side to Let It Be, yes. the single? Yes. Was that, that was the last Beatles single, wasn't it? It was the last Beatles single in the UK. Uh, in America, they put out Long and Winding Road, which is sort of, oh, yeah, 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 but, yeah. But, but yes, it was, so, uh, and again, I think the juxtaposition of Let It Be, and, and you listen to that, and then you sort of flip the single over and you think, what what is this? Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. particularly if you were in America or if you were outside the UK, it would make no sense yeah. at all. But I think anyone in the UK would immediately know that that was in the central section. They're just doing the goons. Yeah, I mean, the the purpose of this conversation is is to look at the connections, and there's so many connections. So many. Yeah, I just wanted to run through some of the, the better known connections and some of the more some of the more sort of obscure trivia i suppose if you want to call it that how did you want to kick off in terms of what what's the first thing that you want to throw into the what's into the, the ring what what's the entry point well i think mm-hmm. I, I i think the fact that um everyone sort of sort of beatles fans know this this you know paul and john were the narc twins um and that they took that from a, a goon show script. Yeah, I mean, the, Fred Nurk was tended to be played by Harry Seacombe, and it was and often played as a occasionally a Cockney, but usually a York, a sort of a, a bluff Yorkshireman. Yeah, uh, Lennon was very much a goon show fan, and um, 
you know, there's a, I imagine this is an apocryphal tale where he comes running down the stairs in his aunt's house and sort of says, did you hear that? Did you hear that on the radio? And then he proceeds to reenact the entire goon show for his aunt and his uncle. And that's, that's a rather sort of charming thought, but I can't imagine his aunt Mimi was the sort of person that would have put up with a reenactment of the goon show, you know? <laughs> no. um, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think that's probably apocryphal. And the other story that, you know, I read on, on the internet, so it must be true, um, is that for his 16th birthday, he bought um, an Elvis Presley single and uh, a goon's single. Um, the Ying hmm. Tong songs. Yeah. And whether that's true or not, I think it should be true because you've got that sort of rock and roll and the sort of humor wordplay that ultimately would come out in his lyrics. And I think it's just uh, to put the Beatles in the context of those guys as teenagers growing up. And that was the thing that everybody listened to was the goon show. And, um, it starts to permeate out through the music and, and become a more visible or I suppose more audible influence in, in the second half of their career. But I think it's hard to overstate how pervasive the influence of the goons were on that generation. Well, it's interesting because he famously, he wrote for the New York Times review of books, he wrote a book review. Yes. The only one he ever did. Yes. In, when was it, September 73, mm -hmm. for the Goon Show scripts. Um, and he says in there, he says, I was 12 when the Goon Shows first hit, 16 when they finished with me. Which is an interesting yes. turn of phrase. And, and it, I took that to mean, so that would have been 56, wouldn't it, when he was 16? Yeah. Um, yeah. The Goons had another four years. <laughs> to go so i'm assuming he took that to mean he discovered rock and roll and put away uh, childish, childish things, things. Yes. yeah 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 i think i think that's probably that's probably it and i think it's a it, it's a i suppose an acknowledgement that the goons were as important to him as rock and roll you know that there were a couple of important fundamentally important things in his life um and in his childhood, it was the goons, and in his later years, it was rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And if we look at 56, yeah, it's interesting because I would imagine, right, tell me, he, he grew up with Aunt Mimi, mm -hmm. um, and what was his uncle? George, uh, Uncle George. George, okay. I'm assuming it was, it was a nice middle-class household. I'm assuming they had a television. Uh, yes, I think they would have had a television. Yes, they did have a television. Okay, well, was Mimi that sort of... Um, slightly starchy matriarch that she wouldn't allow ITV. That's, to yes, be, to, that's, yes, exactly, mm, ex exactly. Mm. And I think it, it was a very middle-class upbringing, and he may have presented it differently, but um, it, it was a very starchy, as you say, middle-class upbringing. And I suppose the goons were sort of ran very much counter to that. They were anarchic, they were irreverent, you know, Spike is trying to cram as many innuendos and uh, off-color jokes in, into the scripts as he possibly could. And I can't imagine that, that Aunt Mimi was a fan at all. Yeah, well, I mentioned ITV specifically because I guess when, when John was still 15, but, you know, in the early, early 56, we get, uh, first of all, we get um, the Idiot Weekly, 
press yes, tokens yes, on, yes. On, on, on ITV, and then swiftly followed by a show called Fred, and then Son of Fred, all directed by Richard Lester. Yes, yeah, I'd like to think that you know the young Lennon, you know, in between skiving off doing his homework or whatever, it was surreptitiously turning the television to ITV over to ITV to watch um, Sellers and Milligan in dustbins. You know, it's interesting and, because I've never, I've never read. I've never read any comment where he he's talked about that. You know, he talked about the goons a, little, a bit, and you know, he wrote the book review. But I and the the, the running, jumping, standing, still Dick Lester's involvement there. But I've never. That's an interesting point. Um, but yes, it's a nice image. Yeah, and by the way, I just want to give credit where it's due. Of you know, you are the you are the um, the the Beatles expert <laughs> of the two of us for sure. Um, but I you know I I know quite a bit, and I wrote down a list of of what occurred to me is you know, goon and Beatles connections. And then I, uh, I went to a couple of friends of mine. Uh, one is Mike Haskins, who I'll, I'll come back to towards the end of the show. And Mike um, has, has actually written a book. Um, it's due out very soon. Uh, the Beatles Liverpool. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later, but I asked Mike if he could, you know, throw some, cause he, he's also a, a big goons fan. Mm-hmm. And he supplied me with some, some, rather arcane facts and and uh, trivia and um, and also andrew andrew hickey friend of mine he has um the podcast very popular podcast history of rock music and 500 songs yes yes i'm, um, I'm a big fan okay well i was talking to him last night and i and i said look can you you know say anything and we i sort of ran through the obvious stuff that i had you know yeah <laughs> and i said and he he came up with a, a couple of really good um little little things for me to to include hopefully in our conversation. Um, one thing that Mike mentioned to me um, was that uh, the running, jumping and standing still film apparently was, was played repeatedly at the Tatler cinema in Liverpool mm-hmm. in the late fifties. Uh, when was it? 59, I think 59. 59 came yeah. um, and apparently the Beatles would go and watch it regularly in between bookings at the cavern, which was a few minutes walk away. Yes. Yes. Um, and John does mention it as well in um, in the review of the Goon Show scripts. He says that he says there's there's a rare and beautiful film without Harry Seacom called the Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film. Ask your local art house to run it. It's a masterpiece and captures the Goon spirit very well. And he specifically mentions Dick Lester in that context as well. So George, I know, was also a huge fan uh, of that film. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, he has talked about that as well. Um, so I think. If you look, listening, looking at the Beatles, you sort of would imagine that it's John and George are the most likely suspects to be Goons fans. But um, it's it's interesting to think that they were just sort of sitting, watching and re-watching uh, that film. And then, what, four or five years later, Dick Lester is, uh, yep. is working with them. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing series of circumstances that bring them together with George Martin. Yes, um, and, I, and I don't want to race too far ahead here, but you have the fact that so George Martin obviously is involved with recording. I think it's Peter Sellers' first actual record, which is uh, Jacka and the Flying Saucers, um, and then he he obviously would go on and and, re, and uh, produce uh, Best of Sellers and songs for Swinging Sellers and yes. Peter and Sophia, and but he also um, he got involved with uh, Spike, and he produced. You got to go, Al, 
um, <laughs> for Spike, which was, again, that was 56. And he and Spike hit it off and, and became very good friends. And Spike, of course, um, would release uh, Purple Aeroplane, produced yes. by George Martin. Yes, yes. Um, some, um, um. We all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. Wait a minute, I think the Beatles did this. I could do it better. Trouble is, they outnumber me. There must be an answer from the middle age group. I've got it. If you can't eat them, join them. Ooh, oh, <clears throat> ooh. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, we don't live in a yellow submarine. A yellow submarine, I'm a yellow submarine. Oh, we don't live in a yellow submarine. We live in a purple airplane. A plane, a plane. We live in a pineapple plane. Fab, fab. And it's those records which, I mean, your Parlophone was primarily known as a comedy record label. You know, it was known for that type of song. But it's the fact that working with Sellers, who's doing, you know, multi voices and, and sort of singing with himself and doing duets and things, and the, the sort of editing skills and the tape skills and the overdubbing and the multi-tracking and all of those things that George Martin was doing with Sellers and, you know, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai, that record, that type of thing, mm-hmm. um, it would all sort of feed into what the Beatles would do later in their career with sort of multi-tracking and using using the studio. Yeah, so, and, and George Martin... As I say, it, it's, it's if you if you so he 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 starts working with Spike in the in the mid fifties. They become firm friends, and then what six April late April sixty two, Spike's getting married again. Second second wedding, second marriage, mm-hmm. and he surprisingly I thought he he asked George Martin <laughs> to be his best man, um, which which the the trip up north. For the actual wedding, I believe was was a, a, a bit of a Fred Carno, uh, by all accounts. But if you look at the timeline, so George Martin, Spike's best man, in late April '62, and about five weeks later, Martin meets the Beatles for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And I hadn't. I must admit, I hadn't realised it was quite that close. I hadn't. I had read somewhere that the George Martin was the best man, but I hadn't realised it was that. That was the timeline. Yeah, and also I was trying to find out today, and I'm sure there is, you know, if I tried a bit harder, I could have found out. But obviously George Martin produced Bridge on the River Y in, in 62. Yes, yes, yes. Um, famously having to clip out the K from Kwai for, because originally yep. it was, it was they, they used the word Kwai and then they were facing um, <laughs> legal action. So uh, he had to- Legal action. Yeah. Um, I don't. So that was sixty-two as well. I'd love to know when that was actually in sixty-two. When that was when that was actually produced. I'm assuming it was before the before they started. Yeah. So was he? What was was he in one studio with the Beatles and in another studio with a razor blade slicing the K? Mm. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd love to think of of you know because it was Sellers, it was Milligan, it was Jonathan Miller, Peter Cook. Yeah. You'd love to think they're sort of uh, you know passing. The, the Beatles in the corridor or something like yes, that, you know? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So I've got, I've got, I've jotted down 10, what I would class as 10 things that 
anyone with more than a passing interest in the Beatles and the goons would know if you like okay and and these are connections so this is either direct goon show stroke Beatle connections or more more obviously it's you know it tends to be Sellers or Milligan and their connections with yeah the boys um so got number one obviously the magic Christian for obvious reasons um so we've got Ringo we've got uh Peter we've got Spike as well um we've got someone who looks like john in it uh, it's not yes. actually john though is it or Yoko? not actually not actually john or your code no. no um um can i ask you do, do you like that film i love that film i love that film and i said that uh, we did a we did an episode on ringo's films and i said you know how much i like that film and i i i was virtually getting hate mail but people saying this is the worst thing i've ever seen um and i think it's just such a a fantastic collection of English sort of comic and character actors and actresses sort of gathered together. And uh, I, 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 there's, there's always sort of business going on in the back of scenes where you've got Hattie Jakes reading a sort of Nazi novel in the background just very unobtrusively. And that, I, I think it's a wonderful film. I, I remember seeing it for the first time uh, it, there was a season of, of sort of odd late 60s films on BBC Two and seeing it when I was about 13 or 14 and just becoming slightly obsessed with who was in it and, and you know, trying to spot people. But uh, good. I'm glad I found someone that uh, that loves it too. Oh, well, I love it. And and it's not his best film by a, by a long chalk, let's no, face it. No. I'm talking Sellers here. Uh, it yep. possibly was Ringo's best film. I was going to say, I think it's possibly. Well, I think maybe, maybe that'll be the day. But it's certainly, it's certainly his second. Well, it's better film, than what is it, Son of Dracula? Uh, yes, <laughs> although that's that's quite niche. You know, I still, I still would like to see that come out on DVD. But hey, uh, I, I watched that with the lads relatively recently. He was well, tough, tough going. Mm. Um, no, but the Magic Christian is. Um, it, it's it's in, well since well late last year. It, it sort of come back into public consciousness be off the back of yeah um get back of course yes uh, I, have, I have i have a friend who says uh, peter sellers was directly responsible for the breakup of the beatles because <laughs> ringo had to leave um the, the get back sessions to go and start filming at the magic christian and uh you know if they'd had more time and had been under less pressure <laughs> you know we'd still have the beatles today and they'd be headlining hyde park that's it's all of peter course, sellers fault. of course Mentioning Get Back, uh, there is that scene where Peter Sellers appears. Yes. And it's excruciatingly mm. embarrassing. Mm. I, I, I had read the dialogue without ever having seen the sort of the, 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 the video footage, mm. and it seemed funny on the page, but it was excruciating. And Sellers looked so uncomfortable mm-hmm. from, beginning, from beginning to end. Uh, you know, he sort of, and you, you think given Sellers' personality and his his ability to improvise and just, just find the comedy in any situation, he just seems completely derailed by what is going on around him. Well, I, I also I wonder if that's because he had to be himself. He, he wasn't playing a character. Yeah, yeah. Um, could be, could be. I, I, I read, I'm not sure whether it was in, in Sellers' biography where... where Perhaps a comment from his son, where, where he was saying, you know, his his father was slightly obsessed with the fame that the Beatles had, mm. you know, the level the yes. level of fame, yeah. 
um, and that he was sort of intrigued by that and curious about that and, uh, you know, wanted to be in that circle. Um, uh, and certainly sort of he and Ringo were, were hanging out around that time and sort of in, in advance of the film. But you would think that Lennon and he would get on and would be able to kind of spark off each other. I mean, Lennon is clearly strung out in that. And I, I just think Sellers realizes something's not right. Uh, this is unpredictable. Well, I'm not going to be, you know. Yeah, the, the power dynamic has shifted because if you think, obviously, though, I mean, it's later on in one of my other lists, one of my mini lists I have. <laughs> um, there's that footage of Sellers in, in 65. Um, presenting the Beatles with Grammys. Yes. Um, during yes. the film, they're on set at Twickenham filming. Um, it is Twickenham, isn't it? Uh, it is because they're they're sitting they're sitting in the bar. If you if you know help where there's a sort of a yes. bar and somebody pulls a lever and they fall down yeah. and there's a tiger and they're they're sitting in front of that bar. Yeah. And Sellers is is presenting them uh, on camera with, with the Grammys, and they seem quite not awed by him, but quite respectful. A yep. little bit of leg pulling, a little bit of joshing. He is the star mm. at that point. So, so for all that they've had all their success and they're, they're, they're filming their second movie, clearly he is still someone that they look up to. And Lennon in particular, the camera, I know that clip and the camera kind of pans along. You know, I think it's kind of Paul, Ringo, and then it gets to John. And John just has the biggest grin on his mm. face. Sort of a real genuine smile and then you get to george who's being quite kind of looking the other way and being a little bit uh, being like george know, being like george but but john seems genuinely thrilled yeah uh just to be there and uh to get the the grandma award i think uh, Sellers, he does yeah <laughs> you know, and uh, i think almost thought it was ironic that he sort of says it's the grandma award and then hands it to paul you know given <laughs> john's later comment about granny music. Granny music yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah yeah i don't know if you can hear me better now and welcome to the great Twickenham Studios, uh, where the boys, the Beatle, are making their new film, Help. And I am actually with the Beatle now. And to uh, present them with their grandma awards, which uh, uh, they uh, have won from America. And um, they're delighted to be here this afternoon to receive them. And I have had the singular honor, no, I think, having been asked to present them. May I say? <coughs> yes, you may. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a great pleasure for us too, I'm sure. You may sure. There are some more in here. Perhaps you'd like to have to take one. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mr. Eustinoff. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as you can see, folks, the box is now empty. <laughs> and there are no more awards. It's an honor, uh, to say the least. Yeah. Okay, so on my on my list here of, of sort of more more obvious things, Goons, Beatles connections, I've got down here again, um, sticking with the theme, the Peter Sellers White Album tape. Yes. Yes. Thank heavens for that. That, that. that was that was the source of most of the bootlegs that I owned uh, <laughs> <laughs> in in the mid eighties when suddenly suddenly CD bootlegs came along. And uh, so th this is this is something that you know Ringo had had given 
Peter Sellers, because as I say he's he's hanging out with Ringo in around 1968, uh, which is sort of maybe a f- not quite a full year ahead of uh, the Magic Christian. And I say there's this sense at that time that that Sellers is interested in the fame aspect of the Beatles and is sort of uh, I, I don't know what he was doing at that time in terms of his own career or his movie career, but he's he, he's seemed to just have an interest in in the Beatles. He was he was he'd had his heart attacks mm. two or three years before. The quality of the films that he was choosing yeah. was deteriorating slightly, and yeah. but by sixty seven, sixty eight, into sixty nine, you know, I mean he made Casino Royale, didn't he, in sixty seven? Yes, uh, yes. Um, the, 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 perhaps the most sixties of all sixties films, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and not necessarily in a good way. No. Um, so yeah, so he he as I say he was hanging out with 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 Ringo, and um, whenever Ringo famously walked off the sessions of the for the White Album and went off on holiday, he went I think and stayed on Peter Sellers' yacht in the Mediterranean. Um, learned about octopuses making gardens, wrote a song, mm-hmm. came back. So there's that sort of connection as well. He he, you know he Ringo runs off with Peter Sellers if you like. Um, to get away from from the Beatles, mm-hmm. and you said before, you said earlier, you, you you thought that it would be John and George who would be more enthralled to Sellers, yes. whereas it turned out it was Ringo, really, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was Ringo that that seemed to uh, sort of pursue the friendship with with Peter Sellers. Mm. Um, and 1968 is an interesting sort of point in, in, in the, the Beatles slash Goons relationship because it's the beginning of 68 is when Spike Milligan is in the studio while they're recording a song and says, you know, can I have that song uh, for, my, yeah. for my charity album? Yeah. So you've got that. And then by the end of the year, Peter Sellers is hanging out in the studio and Ringo is, is sort of quitting the sessions to go on holiday with, with uh, you, you know, uh, with Peter Sellers. So suddenly 68, you've got, Spike and Peter Sellers in that very much in their orbit at that point. And yet early 68 is when the Beatles are hanging out with the Maharishi and sort of, uh, you would not necessarily put, you know, the goons and the Maharishi together. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's a, it's a strange thing. And I, I, I do sometimes sort of think, well, uh, by the time they got to recording the white album, they were sort of on the rebound from the Maharishi. And again, Sellers, it's it's maybe the music gets simpler, uh, it, it gets less psychedelic, it gets uh, and more like the rock and roll. Back to basics, of almost, their, yeah, yeah, back to basics. And and who is in their orbit at that point in in '68 when they're doing that? Well, that would be Peter Sellers from the Goons, who was sort of fundamental to their teenage teenage uh, influences as well. So mm-hmm. maybe that's just a, maybe that's just a coincidence. Mm. But um, mm, no, no, it's 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 correct me if I'm wrong here. But John was of of all of them. John was the one who was prone to looking back. Yeah, um, John would be writing songs about his mother and and. Well, that's yeah, that's a, that's a good point as well because yes, John is looking back to that kind of teenage, that traumatic yeah. teenage event. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but but yeah, it's as you say, it's it's Ringo is the one that really strikes up the the, the friendship with with Peter Sellers, and then the part in Ringo's part in the Magic Christian is specifically written. 
That's right. For him. Yeah. So I think it's not it's not in the book. No. It's sort of and and I mean really I suppose what Ringo does he moves through that film just watching. He's basically the observer. You know, he's 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 not quite a straight man, but he he's the person who's watching as Sellers does his comic business in each of the little scenes and sketches. Ringo is 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 sort of a foil for him. And I mean Ringo did say at the time there were there were times when he simply couldn't complete a take because he was laughing so much mm. um, that he found it, you know, he was trying to be a serious actor and take this very seriously, but he just kept corpsing because he couldn't keep a straight face. And then of course, once that happened, Sellers played up to it and it just got worse and worse. Um, and I had to do, you know, take after take because Ringo, Ringo was laughing. It's, it's, it's I think if you know the scene with Spike, where Spike is yes. requ- required to eat the um, parking ticket, the, mm. the parking ticket, and Ringo is in the car during that scene, mm. frantically kind of mugging and, and mm. making faces, and and he said he he was doing that because he was laughing so much, <laughs> um, and it's it's all happening in the background, and you think this is a great comic performance from Ringo. He's not the center of attention, but he's just there in the background. But apparently, he was just, like literally, he was just trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> one other th- one other thing about the Magic Christian film, we haven't mentioned um, Badfinger. Yes, yes, uh, big fan of that that song. Yeah, which which Paul Paul basically just gave away to them, didn't he? Yes, yes. Um, so come come and get it. So Paul goes into the studio, records a demo, complete, you know, bass, drums, piano, everything. Gives Badfinger the demo, and they start working up their arrangement of it and Paul says no no you just play it exactly the way I have recorded it and um, you know it becomes a it becomes a hit single mm. and uh, that's a song that Paul you know he could have he could have brought that into the into the sessions for for the Beatles at any point but uh, I, I often think you know was Paul just kind of saying well you know guys this is what you could have had you know, <laughs> um, it was good enough, and I think what would Abbey Road have sounded like if uh, they dropped Maxwell Silverhammer and and, and put uh, "Come and Get It" yeah, on it? But um, yeah. that's 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 a whole other counterfactual. <laughs> You'll have the the Maxwell fans uh, issuing fatwas against you. Uh, I'm one. I'm already I'm already I'm I'm already top of their hit list, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it can get no worse. It can get no worse. I mean, the the other thing with Ringo and Sellers is that Ringo, uh, Sellers sold Ringo his house, Brookfield, yeah, in nineteen sixty eight. But jo- did you know that John tried to gazump Ringo? No. So, in nineteen sixty eight, uh, Sellers agreed to sell Brookfield his house to Ringo uh, for seventy thousand pounds. Although I think Sellers had probably spent something similar to that renovating it, and um, I, I don't really know the house. But I gather it's you know it's 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 sort of fifteenth century. It's uh, you know pretty impressive. And John Lennon is in 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 the market for an impressive house uh, because he's kind of taking up with Yoko at this mm. point. And uh, he offered Sellers one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for it. Um, but Sellers honoured his commitment to Ringo and sold it to him for seventy thousand. So, which is which go. is uncharacteristically un- admirable. Of sellers. Well, I, 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 yes, it's not, it's not what I would have expected uh, from what I know about uh, Peter Sellers' fondness <laughs> for money. Um, and then I, I, Ringo then sold it to Stephen Stills in, later on. Yeah, only two years uh, later, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I wasn't able to find out how much, whether Ringo kind of turned a handsome profit um, on that. And I think I'm right in saying the only other story I know about Brookfields is I think in the early 70s, Stephen Stills made the mistake of letting Ronnie Wood stay in the house <laughs> while he, was, he went back to America. And um, Ronnie drank everything that was in the cellar, which was very, very expensive vintage wine that Stills uh, collected. But I think, you know, if you're foolish enough to let Ronnie Wood have the key to your wine cellar, um, you've only yourself to Wasn't play. that later um, <laughs> the basis of an episode of Black Books? Yes, I think that's right. I think you're right. That's right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the flexi discs, the Christmas flexi discs. Yes, that's. I want to talk about that very, a little bit? Very, very. Yeah, the flexi discs are very goonish. Mm. Uh, I mean, particularly, I think the one in 1967, which yeah. is the sort of Chris, Christmas pantomime, yeah. uh, matches matches that you know what jasper and uh, mm. that that is that is there is no plot there are just multiple characters coming in and out with strange voices and complete non sequiturs and that i mean that could be a good show script i think yeah it was around it was of course it was a 67 that they made magical mystery tour um, yes now there's a there's a line in that spoken by john which mm-hmm. echoes a line from a goon show. Um, so in the Magical Mystery Tour, there's the bit where John says, come with me now into that secret place where the eyes of man have never set foot. Yes. Um, and there's a goon show called The Lost Emperor from 1955. When the line is, the tomb of Genghis Khan with its untold treasures remains undiscovered. He lies buried in some Mongol hillside where no human eye has ever set foot. Um, That's a, a direct lift. More or less. Yeah. 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 So around this time, Lennon, yeah, he's obviously he's, he's had his books published as well. And, you know, things like the Daily Howl. And- yeah. The, the, the Daily Howl is a, I'm, I'm very, I'm not a fan of the Daily Howl. And I, 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 I sort of think there must have been a million teenagers writing that kind yeah. of stuff and it's not particularly funny and if he hadn't gone on to be john lennon that's not something anybody would be interested in reading or would have kept or you know if you find that in a, a junk shop that some child had written in the 50s you know uh, you, you wouldn't give it a second glance and I, I i think it's it's more a record of the fact that the goons were influencing him um, but I don't think it has much intrinsic worth, but it's it sort of become elevated and, and John elevates it, you know, he, and he links it very specifically. He, he talks about one of my earliest sort of things that I wrote was very influenced by, by the goons. Mm. Um, and I think the books that come out are, you know, shall we say it's a, an homage to the goons mm. rather than saying he's just lifted Spike Milligan's uh, shtick wholesale. You know, I'm not a big fan, I have to say, of, of, of the books. Um, mm. I, I, I kind of think, well, Spike Milligan does it so much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, I, you know, John is always, I think, very self-conscious about those books. That Well, he gets, a, he quite, gets what is it? Is it on one of the flexi discs, he gets a gentle ribbing 
from the the others about yes they, they yes they were George in particular George, yeah. and I mean and, and, and there's a, there's a sort of a, a a clip where George actually tears up the book yeah. uh, you know so <laughs> I I think I think they do um uh, you, you know I I do think the other Beatles don't take it very seriously but uh, it's very much you know uh ning nang nong and and uh, it, it's very spike and i don't really think it, it it deserves to be put on the same level as spike um because it's quite derivative you know i think spike spike to me spike milligan and his writing sort of just emerges out of nowhere really i mean you've got lear and you've got that kind of nonsense first but spike just elevates it to a, a completely different uh i can see it's very dated now and i can see that people like the magic christian you know that people these days look at it and don't really mm, connect mm. with it but um i think if it hit i think if spike's writings hit you at a particular point you know when you're kind of 13 or you're that's kind of slightly pretentious teenager and sort of slightly angsty and i think if it hits you there and it gets you it, it will it will stick with you well that obviously then you've brings us on to Milligan claiming that the lyrics of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was inspired by um, the goons. Yeah. Um, do you know about this? I'm so, sure you know about this. So not LSD then? No, no, no. <laughs> Based on, well, this is the thing, right? He says, Mill I mean, Milligan had a tendency to exaggerate and all the rest yeah. of it, but he, um, <clears throat> he said that, he said, we used to talk about plasticine ties in the goon show and this crept up in lucy as plasticine porters with looking glass ties yeah um mm -hmm. there's no mention of plasticine ties at all in any goon show well i say that not in any that exists that have survived yeah um, i'm not sure about the early early shows there is a goon show called the plasticine man without any doubt this body is that of a man of the plasticine period oh and beautifully preserved Considering he's 6,000 years old. He's quite incredible. He's so well preserved, he's still alive. I, I see. What's this? What's this ancient weapon he's holding? It's my saxophone. I'm, I'm a rock and roll saxophone. A real gone guy in a rock. Simon and Pee's hand dog. Don't rock and rock, yeah. I'm crazy, man, crazy. I'm cool. <laughs> If only we understood his strange prehistoric language. Yes, if only we did. Hey, no, wait, wait. Listen, listen, listen. So is this right? Is this right that Milligan was sitting in on some of the Sergeant Pepper sessions? Ah, uh, no, I don't know. I have to say, I have, I, I've never, I've never heard that. That's, it's possible because mm. that was a period. That was a period when people were just coming and going constantly uh, during those sessions i mean the, the one that i'm aware of is across the universe but that was early 68 so i i, I don't know that he was there at the time i'd love to i'd, I'd um, love to think because is the story that david crosby was um there for the day yeah. in the life um yes i'd love it to, <laughs> to beat spike as well <laughs> you think spike was there sitting in a corner helping john finish off the lyrics to uh I, i'm sure we i'm sure spike would have mentioned that if that had happened yeah, but yeah. uh the, the plasticine Porter's thing seems a little tenuous, um, but uh, I mean, I think cer certainly, you know, if you were looking for a, a, a Milligan-esque lyric, it's probably I Am The Walrus is probably where you would go, where it just kind of tumbles out, and it is this sort of nonsense, 
um, yes. nonsensical free-form verse uh, that's kind of pouring out of Lenin. And that's probably, I think, as close as you get, and as close as Lenin gets to transferring what he's written in the books into... Uh, in, in, into kind of it's, uh, it's more Lewis Carroll, isn't it? Lewis yeah, Lewis but even then, yes, it, it kind of reaches back even further. I think to to Lewis Carroll, and it's interesting that that's really the point at which Lennon stops that. Mm. You know, he 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 does. I am the walrus. There's a little bit, I suppose, of that in across the universe at the beginning of '68, and then he he sort of abandons those sort of dense, uh, sort of densely worded images stop stop appearing in the song so it's almost as if he's taken it as far as he can go and then just walks away from it and then it's, it's uh, all songs and, about him and yoko and sean and, and then it God yeah and... then <laughs> yeah then it all becomes it all all becomes about him the artist is the art and the art yeah, is the artist yeah. and uh i mean it's interesting that's probably a theory i would have thought that spike might have subscribed to that y- you know um it's the life of the artist is worth examining and and you sort of you're living your art you know spike strikes me i I don't pretend to know uh a lot about spike's demons and 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 sort of his his approach to things but it does strike me that perhaps he was sort of similarly minded that uh certainly took lennon took what he was doing very seriously and i think spike probably did as well but he you know this idea that lennon has that you know i can't decide if i'm a genius or a an idiot yeah yeah, and you kind of think you you could see with Spike with his kind of mood swings and his 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 sort of mental health issues that that's the kind of toing and froing. You know, one day you think you're the the a genius, and the next you're sort of consumed by self doubt. And Lennon was quite open about that, but um, uh, particularly sort of you know late late sixties, early seventies. And uh, one of the things um, after Spike died, and there was an estate sale one of the things that went up on sale was a book that Lennon had given Spike, and it was a copy of Arthur Janov's Primal Scream. Mm-hmm. So so Lennon sort of obviously got this book. It was, he was sent a copy of the book. He read it. It obviously meant a lot to him. He embarked on, and he sent a copy to Spike. Well, that's um, interesting, because that would have been, when would the, when would the Primal Scream would have been, 69, 70? 69, 70, early 70. Okay, because yeah. I wanted to just mention that Sp- Spike, when we talk about Spike in general, you could say that he's quite, he can be quite thin-skinned, quite sen- very sensitive, mm. very sensitive guy in many ways. Fiercely um, outspoken, but also very insecure in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. And yeah. and he, he was quoted as, as saying of Lennon um, that he and Lennon used to talk a lot about comedy and he said he was a goon show freak. It all stopped when he married Yoko Ono. Everything stopped. He never asked for me again. Which kind of right. implies that uh, as soon as John married Yoko, that was it. He never spoke to Spike again. But the book gives the lie to that, doesn't it? Well, certainly he, certainly he sent him the book. Mm. So it would be interesting to know if they, they spoke about that. Um, but I think that that is something that other people comment on, that when Yoko arrived... Um, uh, sort of by sixty eight, sixty nine, uh, her her sort of arrival basically excluded everything else. So everything else that went before was sort of pre Yoko, and there's a post Yoko. And mm. Um, mm. 
but interestingly, uh, as you say, Lennon wrote the wrote a book review of the Goon Show scripts, and in nineteen seventy seven, I think for his birthday, so he'd been thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Yoko gave him a set of Goon Show. That's right. Tapes. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think by that stage, he had started to reconnect. You know, he he writes to his aunt Mimi and says, "Send me my school tie mm. that I had when I was a teenager." And you can see pictures of him wearing this. Um, and he, you know, gets Bath Oliver biscuits sent to him from England, and he's watching Faulty Towers and he's watching Monty Python. And he's sort of reconnecting with that. But I think certainly that initial, let's say, five year period when he and Yoko get together is a kind of scorched earth. Mm. Mm. policy with everything everything that went went before but that's interesting i it would be fascinating to find out i must try and find out if he and spike actually uh actually spoke uh around 1970 i mean i you know if you were spike milligan and somebody sent you a book about uh how to correct your mental health problems uh you know <laughs> perhaps not the most tactful it was probably meant well <laughs> you know? yeah he probably sent it to everybody he knew he probably had his yeah. little address book out and just sending it to uh, Aunt Mimi as well. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but it, it it is that thing where they the the the, the goons. I mean, we're talking about the goons, but essentially it's Milligan and Sellers. Of course, it is. Yeah, and they sort of spiral in and out of the lives and the orbit of individual Beatles. So you know, you've got Ringo and Sellers in '68, '69, and but and, and You've got Spike Milligan, uh, you know, in 68, and, and he and Lennon are connecting. And then, but by the early 70s, it's George Harrison and uh, Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan. And they're sort of all hanging out at George's house at Friar Park. Mm. And, jo- uh, you know, Peter Sellers is taken to wearing caftans or Nehru jackets and has yeah. gone quite, uh, qu- quite Indian in his... Uh, his approach to things, and he he seems to be sort of taking that up from from George. Was he a little late to that party, Peter Sellers? When he starts, I mean, I've seen pictures of of Sellers in those sort of long Indian um, jackets and things in the early seventies, and he was he was hanging out with George and with Ravi Shankar mm. Mm. and sort of meditating and uh, doing. And but my understanding is he he had a falling out with Ravi Shankar. That um, he asked Ravi Shankar, would he come and, you know, give a recital uh, for Sellers at a party he was having uh, for some friends, and Ravi Shankar said, yes, that will cost you, and quoted him some astronomical um, appearance <laughs> fee, where Sellers was hoping just obviously that Ravi would turn up, you know, give him a few tunes, and uh, that would be that. Uh, but Ravi, much like Peter Sellers, I think was the man that knew the value of a dollar. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. um, he, he. Am, am he, I imagining? Sorry, am I imagining it? Am I imagining this completely? I'm sure, I've seen a photograph of George Harrison, Peter Sellers, and Ravi Shankar at Disneyland. <laughs> is that is that is that ringing a bell with me, or did we have the same fever dream, perhaps um. that, uh, <laughs> that that you would like to? Perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps it was George's house. George's house was a bit like Disneyland. Well, I suppose. Just, but, um, let me just. Sorry, I will quickly just look it up because otherwise I'm going to have to. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it will bug me. Awesome. I'd really like to see that photograph. Um, Disney. I'm just going to send this to you. 
Okay, I've just sent that to you. <laughs> yep, that's that's a photograph taken. That's a photograph taken in 1974. That is George's 1974 US trip um, at the foot of the steps. But I'm looking at. Oh right, yeah. I, I, it's not. That's not Disneyland, I, is it? That's not. That's not Disneyland. But I'm looking something else up here and i just typed in george harrison and it says george at the happiest place on earth this is a photograph of george eric idle derek taylor's wife and kids in disneyland uh and then it says from what i understand george peter sellers ravi shankar and eric idle all went to disneyland in 1977 what a sight that must have been so uh wow that's insane Mm. that that yeah that that would be uh yeah, you'd like to be queuing up behind them uh, in the, uh, or not, maybe, uh, or not, <laughs> or not at the same, yeah, yeah, uh, or, or not. But uh, Peter Sellers was originally tapped to be the compare uh, for the concert, what became the concert for Bangladesh. Oh right. So the original idea was Ravi Shankar went to George and said, "Look, you know, you know, could we organise something?" And I'm thinking of giving a concert and. You know, could you come along and do something, or could you be a compare? And Peter Sellers has agreed um, to come along and, and and be the compare. And I'm not quite sure what happened to Peter Sellers, why he didn't sort of make it uh, onto the stage. Um, but the original idea had been that he would sort of compare something. He um, he had a habit. Key thing. Sorry, he, he had a habit. Certainly, in the last sort of decade of his life, of agreeing to do things. And then pulling out at the last minute, right? Changing his mind, J- just on concert for Bangladesh. Yeah, is is there any truth that because Spike and George were good friends, um, is is there any truth that George gave Spike the Stratocaster that he played at he the concert? He did. He did. Right, and that he did, and that guitar has disappeared. Mm. Uh, no one, no one there knows where it is. So. Apparently, um, I've seen a photograph, and I would say this is probably late 73 or early 74, judging by George's perm. Uh, the state of George's perm <laughs> hair is always a good uh, a good metric. Um, Spike <laughs> is at Fire Park in a, in a sort of in the studio, a sort of jam session that's going on, and George is on guitar, Spike is on piano, and Peter Sellers is on drums. Wow. Because am I right in saying that Peter Sellers sort of started as a drummer? Oh, yeah, or was yeah. a he drummer was a, early. He was a good drummer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so he is there in the studio. So the, it's like a one Beatle, two Goons, and they're kind of playing. And um, I, I I kind of think, is that was that recorded? Is that somewhere in the Harrison <sighs> Estate archive that there's there's a tape? I mean, it's it's probably like all these things. It's it's much better on the page than to actually uh, well, have to listen to it. Yeah, because Sellers but, Sellers famously was into his gadgets, and he he used to film everything and record everything he could. And, well, and you'd think, but 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 then we we do know that in, towards the end of his life, he he um, threw a lot of his personal stuff onto a large bonfire, and <laughs> it was uh, lost unfortunately sadly um well i would i would i would i would love to see george spike and peter sellers uh, jamming in far park in the studio so spike, the story is that spike then said he would like to play move from keyboards to the guitar so 
he and George kind of swap places. And, and, and George has talked about this, um, and he said, uh, I don't have a lot of strats. There was one I gave to Spike Milligan. He was at my house one day with Peter Sellers. Peter was playing the drum, Spike was playing the piano, and I was playing guitar. Spike got off the piano and wanted to play the guitar. I plugged him into this strat through a little champ amplifier, and he said, oh, I haven't played for 30 years. But he just picked it up, and it sounded like Django Reinhardt or something. And I thought, well, that's good. So when he left, I put it in the case and put it and the champ in Peter Sellers' boot and told him, when you drop Spike off, give him this. That was the guitar that I played at the concert for Bangladesh. So it's a sort of stripped back. The paint work has been stripped back. And um, the, the guitar just disappeared. It, it didn't turn up in the estate sale. It didn't turn up as part of Spike's uh, uh, mm. possessions. Mm. And that, mm. that guitar would be worth a fortune. Mm. And you think, did, that, did Spike just give it away? Did it just end up in the local charity shop? Did Peter keep it in the boot of the car? You know, uh, <laughs> that's um, was Peter thinking that'll be worth a bob or two. I'll, I'll, I'll hang on to that. So yeah, this I is, wouldn't, I wouldn't put is, it past Sellers. I wouldn't put it past Sellers to be a little bit resentful, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm um, having that, and I think it's 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 such it's it's so telling of George's character as well. You know, because you know George is the one that everybody says. You know, he was, you know. Like like the dollar as well, you mm. know. He, he 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 was, but yet he's he just you know on a complete whim. There you go. There's a there's a fan, and even without the George Harrison connection, that's a valuable piece of equipment. Um, with the George Harrison connection, and with it being played at such a high profile event, yes, it yeah. would be it would be worth hundreds of thousands of yeah. pounds if you if you could find it. So you should um, you should put out a request on your podcast to see if you can uh, track down what happened to. To that, uh, that that guitar. Yeah, answers on a postcard. George and Spike sort of famously, uh, you know, were, were very tight at that point, and then they sort of drifted apart. And have you seen? Have, you know the letter that Spike wrote to George? I do. Um, yes, I do. In 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 the eighties, mm. um, sort of saying, you know, if you're about how to use a phone, and said, but of course, if you're extremely rich, you don't have to use the phone. But the funerals at Golders Green. You'll recognise me. I'm dead. Don't don't send mm. flowers. Send money. So he was a little bit. Mm. I was going to say spiky, but that would be a terrible, <laughs> a terrible pun. Um, but uh, my other George Harrison. Well, that's a, that's is, another example of, of Spike being quite thin skinned, yes, quite insecure. Yes. Yeah. 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 And my my other Spike Goons connection is the liner notes for the Travelling Wilburys album, which were written by. Hugh Jampton. Ah. Mm. And the first time I ever heard that joke, I think was on a goon show. I'm pretty sure yes. uh, that that's a goon, that's a it goon is. show joke. It is. And you think, how did that get past the censor? But, uh... My name is Jampton, Captain Hugh Jampton. Sticking with Milligan. Yeah. Because we haven't really talked too much about Paul. I want to talk a little bit about Paul now. Mm-hmm. Milligan partly inspired Ebony and Ivory. Now, this I have not heard. This is new to me. Okay. All right. So apparently, so Spike's doing a sketch on television. I'm not sure. It must probably was, I'm not sure, Q8, Q9, not sure which show it was, where he's playing um, a segregated piano in which the white (laughs) and the black keys were kept apart. (laughs) 
Okay. And, and, and his character, Spike, his character says or sings black notes, white notes, and you need to play the two to make harmony, folks. Okay. And apparently right. McCartney was at least partly inspired <laughs> to write Ebony and Ivory <laughs> off the back of that. I think that's very credible. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that is credible. I well, think apparently, is credible. He, apparently McCartney's gone on record to say that, but, uh, okay. Um, I, so not, yeah, not, not inspired by, uh, uh, you know, some of, some of the slightly less politically correct things that Spike said and did on Q8. No, know, that's but, true. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> this is the two sides of the Milligan coin, but, uh, well, I had not heard that. Yeah. So that's a new, that's a new Beatles-related fact uh, for me. I'm, I'm going to write that down. It might be complete poppycock. <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to, I'd like to think it's true. Well, I'd like to think it's true. I also like the fact that George Martin produced Ebony and Ebony and Ivory. We're, yeah, and, we're 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 back to that yeah, connection. Yeah. Um, also, with regards to Paul, he right. So, do you know do you know about the goon, the goon recording or the the Spike and Peter in the fifties did a version of Unchained Melody. Yes, I've I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, with uh, Dance with Me, Henry as the the B side. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was never released because the the writers of Unchained Melody or the they wouldn't give them a clearance. Yeah. Or... They thought they thought it was it was very un, uh, disrespectful. Mm. Um, but then fast forward about what forty years. Um, who owns the rights to Unchained Melody? Yeah. Mr. Paul McCartney. And, ah. and he allows it to finally be released in the mid-90s, I think. Right. Yeah. Because I have I have heard it, but again, I didn't... There's, there, you stumped me with two Beatles facts that I did not know. <laughs> um, there's, the, there's another obvious Goons-Beatles connection, which we haven't touched on yet. Um, mm-hmm. Peter Sellers doing Hard Day's Night. Yes. Big fan, big fan yeah. of that. Um, so again, you've got that uh, connection back. You know, George Martin has been working with Peter Sellers, then he's working with the Beatles, and then Sellers, I don't know, is, is he satirizing the Beatles? I don't think he, it's anything sort of directed at the Beatles, but um, that is very funny. I mean, I, I, I do remember seeing that somewhere in the early 70s. That, that must have been on television that clip, not the whole thing. The whole that's from the sort of uh, uh, the sort of uh, the the music of Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, the I Granada show. Where, the Granada show. Mm. Um, but I, I mean, I certainly didn't see that. I think until Channel Four. I think put that on at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, not long after it started, but I I definitely had uh, sort of saw the clip of uh, Sellers Richard the um, Third, and I remember buying a CD which had. A Hard Day's Night, She Loves You, and Can't Buy Me Love by Sellers. And um, yeah, she, she Loves You as uh, doing the character of Dr. Strangelove. You think uh, that you have lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. It is you that you're thinking of, and she's told me what to say. She says she loves you. Yeah! Yeah? Yeah? She loves you. Yeah! 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 She loves you. Yeah. 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 Yes, that's what I thought 
Yeah. And I put this CD on. I remember bringing it home because I'm a huge fan of uh, Doctor Strange Love. And it's a different version. Um, it's called the Twits version. Oh, yes. And yeah. Just two upper class twits yeah. of the year. Yeah. Y- you know, uh, sort of doing the voices. And so, so I, it's a dialogue. So you think you, you've lost your love. You know, well, I saw her yesterday. And and um, I'd never heard that before. That that must have been sort of late eighties. Yeah, CD well, he did a couple of versions of "She Loves You" with yeah. "Strange Love" and and the upper class twit voice that he he did on um, the Peter and Sophia LP as well. Um, I have not. I, I had not heard that. I had not heard that. Uh, um, but, but again, the beat. You think the Beatles must have been very happy to have you know you're you're listening to the Goons. Suddenly, you're working with the Goons producer. You're being directed by the Goons, uh, you know, by Dick Lesser d- is doing your film, and then suddenly, one of the Goons is mm-hmm. covering covering your material. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, that's uh, that's that's an incredible um, sort of position to be in. Yes, you know, one of your heroes is suddenly, yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I I I can understand why Lennon is sort of grinning as Peter Sellers is handing him the granny, Grammy. <laughs> granny uh well that, that's another thing actually just on that because that was on the set of help now there was a rumor wasn't there there was talk of peter sellers actually appearing in help at one point and yes uh, I, i'm not i'm not clear whether he was going to appear in the beatles version of help or whether he had been sort of offered was he offered the script or was he was he offered a part in the film i'm, I'm a bit hazy on that because i yeah. think the help script was pulled together pretty quickly you know it went through various um, sort of iterations, and then in the, sort of was pulled together um, pretty quickly in the end. But um, mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been that would have been an interesting. I mean, do you think Sellers would have been happy to sort of take second billing no. in nineteen sixty five? You know. Uh, well, I'm just thinking of when it because his heart attacks were around that time. So um, ah, so maybe uh, yeah, yeah. But who knows? Um, there's a few other quite tenuous not tenuous but as i said at the beginning to you um little sort of bits of trivia that have a Mm -hmm. goon beatles connection which stretching it a bit but i just wanted to to run through those quickly if you don't mind um obviously we've got dick emery so dick emery is um quite front and center as a voice artist on yellow submarine of course yeah um, and he did appear in a number of goon shows and also the goon film case of the Muckinese battle horn. Uh, right. Uh, I, I did. I didn't know he was on. I knew that, but I didn't know he had appeared in, in sort of the episodes. Was he a recurring character? I think he, or? no, no, I think he's, uh, I should have checked. I think he's in, he's in at least two, maybe three. In fact, I think there were some earlier shows that don't exist anymore when Spike was ill that he appeared in as well. So he's, he's ah, been right. in a handful. Um, there is there is a couple that certainly do exist that he's a guest um, a guest on, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in January '63, jukebox jury. Do you know about this? No. Okay. Jukebox jury, January '63, and Dick James had been told that "Please Please Me" would be played, mm-hmm. and it wasn't. Okay. Okay. Um, but more significantly who's on the panel that week we've got eric sykes and spike milligan okay right um and eric sykes wore a herring aid for the first time in public or on on tv at least Mm -hmm. 
um, because obviously he had to listen listen to the music being played. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this this one is is for real sort of hardcore goon fans. This this little bit of trivia here. Mike Haskins shared this with me. Okay, now you you are probably not aware that um, very 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 occasionally, in fact, there's probably only about five instances in the in the whole of the goon shows run that they actually had a, a real uh, female guest on the show. Okay. Okay. Um, and they actually had a lady, a lady, an actress. <laughs> a, lady. a lady. They had a, um, a, a, an actress who was working with Peter Sellers on a television program at the time uh, in the mid fifties, uh, guest on the Goon Show twice. Okay. Uh, in the episode, uh, Ye Bandit of Sherwood Forest, and in a later episode called Tales of Montmartre, which we've covered on this, this podcast. And that, that actress was called Charlotte Mitchell, and she, she was very friendly with the goons. And there is a rumor, there, there's, there's rumors about her and Sellers as well, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, her husband at the time was a, an actor called Philip Gard. Okay. Not, not, right. not really well known, but, but Philip Gard played Edgar. Um, in a third program recording of King Lear in the 60s, okay? Ah, right. And so he appears in the run-out of I Am The Walrus. That is a good fact. I, <laughs> I did not know that. That is a very good fact. Very tenuous, but very Very good. tenuous, exact, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the kind of information I like to squirrel away. That's mm. That's a... Uh, that's going to be a tie-break question in a Beatles quiz or a Goons quiz someday, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to forget that. That's a that's a great piece of trivia. Um, that's excellent. Well done. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike, for, for <laughs> thank sharing you, Mike. that with me. Yeah, thank, thank you, Mike. That um, is very good. I know thee well. A serviceable villain, as duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rest you. One other thing as well. There's there's a famous photograph of the goons holding leeks in 1956. Don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen that photo. I have. I do. I know that photograph. Yeah. Mm. Now, in 72, they recreated, more or less, that photo with the, the much older goons holding leaks. Yeah. And I like to think that that's the goons version of the red and blue album covers. <laughs> that's very tenuous. That's very tenuous. But I, I, I see what you did there. Thank I you. see what you did there. That's very good. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Um, I, I let you away with that. Thank you very I'll much. I let you away with that. That's, that's the gun, that, that is not going to win me a Beatles quiz someday. That's uh, that's mic drop territory. That, that's that, mic. That's mic drop. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think I, I was going to say I, I, I'm not sure whether we, I mentioned this on mic or off mic, but uh, that the Stuart Sutcliffe link um, in 1957, Spike did a TV show where the youth of Britain got to sort of put questions. Uh, to, to leading lights of the day and uh, uh, Liverpool Art College sent some people along to the audience and one of them was Stuart Sutcliffe and he who of course for people that 
don't know, he was in the original lineup of the Beatles. He was the fifth Beatle, if you like. Mm. And mm. Uh, he, he appeared on camera and got to put two questions uh, to Spike. But of course, in the way of things, that TV show no longer exists. Mm. And mm. Uh, it's particularly frustrating because there is no recording of Stuart Sutcliffe's voice. Um, the closest is there's a sort of a tape of them Beatles rehearsing and you can hear somebody speaking very faintly in the background and, and they said, well maybe that was Stuart Sutcliffe but you think he was on camera yeah uh, we, with we, Spike we, Milligan we don't know and, what the questions uh, were do we no we don't no. don't know anything about it and uh, you think that's just it's another one of those terrible terrible situations where you know there was no foresight whatsoever about keeping these things um, no I, I suppose no you know um, but very, very kind of uh, frustrating when I read that. And yeah. um, so the other, the only other two things that that, that I thought I would mention mm. um, was uh, the "It's all in the mind" that phrase ah, yes. from the Goon Show. Yeah, that appears in Yellow Submarine in the film. Yeah. it's all in the mind, you know. And that 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 was a, a sort of recurring phrase, I think, in the Goon shows. I mean, that's... it was it was it was um, it was re- it, well, it's attributed to Larry Stevens, who wrote a lot of scripts with Spike. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry um, sadly died in the late fifties, um, but yeah, he I think he came up with that. That was used as a recurring catchphrase, and it was often used just to um, <clears throat> abruptly end an episode. <laughs> The, 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 they'd run out of plot, and so the announcer, yeah. Wallace Greenslade, yeah. would chip in with, "It's all in the mind, you know." Cue, it was the cue early music. equivalent of, "What, what, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now?" You oh, know, it just yeah. Well, see, I'd, I'd written down, I'd written down. It crops up in the Beatles cartoon episode, "Strawberry Fields Forever." That line as well, right? Could could be, but that's interesting because they had so little to do with that, uh, with, with that that production. Um, mm. Whereas I think that the, the the Yellow Submarine script, Roger McGough had a lot of input into that, yeah. and uh, you kind of think he he you know same generation listening to the Goons, that's yeah. same that kind of same sense of humor. I enjoyed that. Yes, sir. Most enjoyable. Yeah. How did we do it, John? Oh, it's all in the mind, you know. <laughs> And, and the other thing is just that talking about Paul McCartney and uh, Spike Milligan deserving a co-write credit for uh, Ebony and Ivory, but they lived quite close together, Paul and Spike, um, yes. in, in the in the 80s. So uh, sort of in Rye in East Sussex. So it's very close to Paul's Hog Hill studio. And supposedly they, Paul would kind of go and visit Spike on a fairly regular basis. And I think it's, I always think it's sort of kind of ironic that we started off, or I started off by saying, John, George, they would be the ones that would be most attuned. And you think of Paul as being a little bit more straight-laced and uh, uh, not really sort of of that mind. Mm. Um, but yet he and Spike become fast friends when 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 they live together in the 80s. They, they call around Paul supposedly would when they live together I'd, I'd love them to live that'd be a sitcom that would be a sitcom Spike and Paul that would, that would be a sitcom we should get some we should we should copyright that idea yes. let's get writing that that would be a fantastic <laughs> um 
It, it would be like a, a more surreal version of Stella Street. That would be fantastic. <laughs> with, with music as well. Um, that would be very good. I think, yeah, we could write that in an envelope and send it to yourself uh, <laughs> to, co- to copyright that idea. Peter Serafinowicz's poll. Yeah. yeah. Um, who would uh, play Sonic? Who, who would be Spike? Uh, that's probably uncast. David, uh, David Threlfall. Yes. Yes. That would be good. That mm. would be good. Mm. That would be good. Um, and they used to go for tea and Paul would come round to Spike's house and Spike would be in bed. So Paul would just sit and play the piano. Um, and have you, are you aware of the poem that Paul wrote for Spike? No, no, no. He wrote a poem. Now, I don't know when this was written, but this poem, uh, turns up in 2008, whenever all of Spike's sort of estate possessions are being auctioned off. And it's called The Poet of Dumb's Woman Lane. And it comes complete with a cartoon called The Nutters of Starve Crow Lane. Okay. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a little poem. And um, do you want me to read you the poem? Oh. Would, that be, uh, would that be taking up too much time? With, with every fibre of my being, please. <laughs> the voice of the poet of Dumb Woman's Lane can be heard across the valleys of sugar-burned cane. And nostrils that sleep through the wildest of nights will be twitching to gain aromatic insights. The wife of the farmer of Popping Hole Lane can be seen from the cab of the Roberts Bridge train, and passengers' comments will frequently turn to the wages the wife of a farmer can earn. The poet of Dumb's Woman's Lane sallies forth. He is hoping for no one to see. And it's signed, with love, from Paul, Yesterday's Man. Ah. And then he drew a little cartoon of a man and a woman giving a maca thumbs up. Of course, yeah, wonderful. Of course, and you could have you could have had that uh, uh, for your very own uh, for um, six thousand pounds in two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. And you could have bought for that. You could have bought um, twelve pianos. You could, as I was saying to you, the piano went up for sale and it went for four hundred and eighty pounds. I cannot believe that. Um, that's, that's that's in twenty twenty two. That's the price price of a. Loaf of bread. That's, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even if even if he just played, I don't know, chopsticks on it, it needs to be in a museum. And uh, and then I have one completely unreliable anecdote. Oh, go on. Um, so this is when the Beatles get back together in 1994 to record "Free as a Bird," and uh, the, you know George has arrived in his nice motor, and uh, they're all hanging out. In, Hog Hill uh, studio and so there's Paul, George and Ringo and I imagine those sessions have moments of tension <laughs> between <laughs> between them so at one it's point they certainty. Des- yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they decide they're going to take a break and Paul says I have an idea let's go and see Spike, he's only 10 minutes up the road <laughs> and of course George is a big fan and his you know, kept in touch with Spike and uh, Paul is a fan and I don't know when Ringo last one, but anyway, they kind of get in a car. I imagine they're all in the back of Paul's Land Rover and they drive to Spike's house and they ring the bell and Spike opens the door and says, it's not convenient. I'm busy and closes the door <laughs> and sends them on their way. And you think that's Spike. Yeah. Is there anything more spike than that? No. You know, the Beatles, the surviving Beatles, all three, these people who are never in a room together turn up and they're all standing on your front door and uh, you say, no, I'm sorry, I, you know, 
not convenient. Come back another day, you know? That's so I, I don't know whether that is true or not. I want that but, to be true. And I, I so want that yeah. to be true. Uh, I so want that to be true. <laughs> and, it, and, and again, I, I like the notion that in 1994, the Beatles are in a studio. It is a tense situation. You know, John obviously isn't there. They're working to his tape. George is sort of there under sufferance. It it will be tense. And what what do they do to kind of break the tension? What do they turn to? Mm. They turn back mm. to the goons. Yeah. To to the thing that in their teenage years that united them all. And it's it's back to that point that we talked about on our podcast about you know my name, look up the number, where in the midst of the kind of chaos and the almost physical altercation between John and Paul, they suddenly, one of them decides to pull out this tape and they get together and John and Paul standing around a microphone doing funny voices like the goons, trying to reach back to their their kind of, that, that connection they had to, to find some common ground. And it just seems to me, this is why I so want it to be true is, is not only because it's the most spike thing I've ever heard, but also the fact that the Beatles, the three Beatles, when they wanted to take a break from the tension or from, from the work that they were doing, they turned to spike, they turned yeah. to the goons, yeah. you know, and they're, they're, they're reaching back to that same thing. Yeah. And then I, 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 again, I like to think that the three Beatles just stood and laughed on the doorstep, you know, because what else could you do? <laughs> Ah, uh, that's a love. I think that's a, a perfect point to end on. Really, um, have you got anything else, Stephen? Is it? Is I, that, I, is I, I don't think so. I think you've. I think you stumped me with uh, a couple of Beatles, Beatles points of trivia there, and uh, I'll, I'll be writing those down as I say. And the, uh, the the tank is dry. Um, the tank is dry. I think we've, we've <laughs> run out of ideas. It's but but you know it's all in the mind. You know. It, oh, very good. Um, I tr- by the way, I did try desperately to find a Harry Seacum. Uh, I, I know, I know. There, there is one. Okay, kind of. It's not really. It's just that I really want. I really want you to tell me that he tried to get George Harrison on to sing "My Sweet Lord" on Highway. <laughs> he introduced Paul to acid. Um, <laughs> uh, no, he well, he appeared on the bill with them on the '63 Royal Variety performance. That's it. Oh, that's it, really. That's it. <laughs> I, 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 always, I always feel slightly sorry for Harry. Yeah. You know, but it's his own fault, you know, because, you know, Q8, Highway, Pink Panther, Highway. Mm-hmm. He was always, he, on this podcast, he is often referred to as the Ringo of the Goons. And I think that's, I think that's quite <laughs> fitting because he's kind of the unifying, yeah. he's, the, he's the diplomat, he's the, the one that they all like. You know? Yes, he's 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 the mediator. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that that's a good analogy. We mm. should, we 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 should have done fifteen minutes on that. You mm. know, but uh, but the clock is against us, yep. <laughs> as they say. <laughs> um, Stephen, listen, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure that everyone listening to this is are already subscribed to uh, Nothing Is Real. So what what have you got coming up? What have we got coming up? Mm. Um, well, we've just finished our Alan Klein marathon in season six. So I think we've probably alienated uh, half our listeners <laughs> where I was trying to argue that Alan Klein was actually the good guy. But um, so we're still, I think we had quite an ambitious season six where we tried to do an arc of, of sort of a narrative. And I think that exhausted us so much <laughs> that we're going to revert back to a series of, of sort of individual episodes. So um, we might do an Alan Klein part five. Um 
but uh, we're going to look at some individual characters in the Beatles' orbit, and uh, who knows, we might do a Beatles and the Goons episode. There's no need to. We've already covered that. Of course that not. Of course not. <laughs> no, we just put Europe. We just, we just, I'll just top and tail this podcast and put it out. That, that'd be fine. Yeah, right. That'll be fine. All right. <laughs> um, try and, um, try and, you know, J- Jason's a bit resistant to the goons, isn't he? So, Jason, yeah. Jason is a bit, Jason is a bit lukewarm yeah. uh, on the goons, but he, he puts that down to being so much younger. Yeah. He's const- constantly throwing that up. And, uh, but he did say, you know, it's very much of its time. You know, it was a wartime situation. There was rationing, you know, and I'm thinking, I think it probably resonates. I think we're time for the goons to make a comeback. I think we're living through times when uh, very similar to, to, to the times that produced the goons. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, fantastic. By the way, I just want to do a quick plug before we finish. Sure. Um, I mentioned before, um, thanks to Mike Haskins and to Andrew Hickey for supplying me with some of the more esoteric trivia for this. Um, But Mike has got this book coming out in early September um, called The Beatles Liverpool. And it's going to be, it's a brand new colourful guide to historic Beatle associated locations across Liverpool and Merseyside. Uh, These range from the Beatles homes, schools, the clubs where they played, and even the shops where they bought their first instruments and the barbers where they got their hair cut. Spoiler alert, it was at Penny Lane. Uh, all are described in fab for fact-packed detail. Can you tell I'm reading this? Um, yeah. Uh, and illustrated with what the Beatles' old pal Scylla Black would surely have described as Laura, Laura pictures. <laughs> so, oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, I'm very glad you got a Scylla reference in. We've been doing that in our podcast, so uh, that's great. Oh, well, that's uh, Ringo and... Spike were in that on that Silla, Silla episode, weren't they? In the, was yes, it, uh, yes, in the sixties. Anyway, um, uh, as, and there's also an exciting map showing how all these places are spread across the magnificent city of Liverpool and the wonderful Wirral Peninsula next to it. Uh, so yeah, so that will be out in uh, September, published by Pitkin, and available from all good book emporia. So I just wanted oh. to. Uh, put that plug in for Mike. And if you, you know, if, if you two guys ever decide to hot foot it to Liverpool and do a bit of a, a roving report on Beatles locations, I'm sure Mike would uh, uh, make a first class tour guide. Well, I will definitely take him up on that. I saw, I follow Mike on Twitter and I saw he had put up a picture of a big carton of the books that had arrived. And uh, I think, yeah, absolutely. Because we, we do plan, we've been planning this and then uh, COVID got in the way that we were going to go to Liverpool and uh, mm. do a tour. And, I, and I, I said to Jason, you know, this book is coming out. So we should get Mike on the podcast to talk about his book. Uh, and I said, we should t- take the book as a guide, but it would be even better if Mike would like to come along and he can, he can, uh, he can guide us around the sites. There we go. Okay, well... Stephen, um, thank you very much for, for having me. It, it's uh, uh, I, I get to talk about two of my favourite uh, two of my favourite subjects, and Silla Black. And Silla Black. <laughs> Thanks again, Stephen. Take care of yourselves. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>